The Lord be with you and also with you. Bless the Lord who forgives all our sins. God's mercy endures forever. Welcome to this service of ordered worship. The liturgy, music, homily, and sacrament are offered in the praise of God for our gathered congregation here at Marsh Chapel, for our radio congregation across New England at WBUR 90.9 FM, and for our internet listenership around the globe at WBUR.org. On this first Sunday of the month, as is our custom, we welcome all of whatever age, station, or background to participate in the Sacrament of Holy Communion. Those listening on the radio may request communion in the home by calling the chapel office. We commend to you the ministry of the chapel, both its programmatic offerings and its sermon offerings found on our website. We invite those so moved to identify as members of the chapel community simply by so signing the pew roster or by speaking with one of the clergy or by leaving a note in the collection plate. We encourage one another to continue or commence the practice of disciplined generosity, of tithing, of percentage giving. And we invite you to ponder just what form your ministry here will take among us in the coming weeks this Holy Lent year of our Lord 2018. A dish to pass community luncheon follows worship downstairs, and all are warmly invited. This is the day the Lord has made. We shall rejoice and be glad in it. As we are able, may we stand in the praise of God.
May we pray. Almighty God, keep us both outwardly in our bodies and inwardly in our souls, that we may be defended from all adversities which may happen to the body and from all evil thoughts which may assault and hurt the soul. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. A lesson from the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. Then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents, to the third and the fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son, or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Honor your father and your mother, so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or male, or female slave, or ox, or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
A lesson from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided, through the foolishness of our proclamation, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in reading responsively Psalm 19 with the Antiphon. and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are their words. Their voice is not heard. Yet their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In the heavens he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom from his wedding canopy, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and nothing is hid from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warmed, and keeping them there is great reward. But who can detect their errors? Clear me from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from the insolent. Do not let them have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. 
Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Please stand as you are able for the singing of the Gloria Patri and the reading of the Gospel. Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Saint John, chapter two, verses thirteen to twenty-two. Glory Glory to you, o Lord. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found the people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a wave of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also pulled out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, "Take these things out of here! Stop making my father's house a marketplace." His disciples remembered that it was written, "Zeal for your house." Will consume me. The Jews then said to him, "What sign can you show us for doing this?" Jesus answered them, "Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up." The Jews then said, "This temple has been under construction for forty-six years, and will you raise it up in three days?" But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The gospel of the Lord. Ye that do truly and earnestly repent of your sin. And are in love and charity with your neighbor, and intend to lead a new life 
following the commandments of God, draw near in faith and take this sacrament to your comfort. Martin Luther taught daily devotions, morning by morning, to include recitation of the Ten Commandments, which we have just heard, of the Apostles' Creed, contours of which round out this service, and of the Lord's Prayer to be lifted in a moment, to which this morning we append a meditation on John 2. Right away, we sense something loose in the scripture. We are used to something loose because day by day we know from our bones and ears that there is something loose in the universe, as Gardner Taylor used to say. Yes, we believe in God, maker of heaven and earth. That, by the way, in its creedal asperity is all Luther's favorite creed says about God, the creator. But along with the brute reality of all there is and all that is there to honor both Plato and Aristotle, we know in our bones and ears that all this creation around us shakes and rattles and rolls and has abiding in it something big and loose. The Decalogue come Lent brings us up short. Creation is one Christian doctrine or set thereof, and so is fall. Creation and fall. The goodness of creation is shot through with the fallenness of creation. Sin, death, meaninglessness, pride, sloth, falsehood, superstition, idolatry, hypocrisy. Something loose in the universe. With blood-soaked floors in public high schools far and public libraries near, we in tears do quietly nod. We weep as we pray. What a world. It is God's world. That's creation. It is a crummy world. And that is the fall. Somehow, by the gift of faith and the light of Christ, we try to live with both, hence sacrament. Part of what was shaking loose in the community of the Gospel of John echoes here in John 2. There is a really odd way of speaking about the Jews in this Gospel. The Passover of the Jews was near. That is a strange way of saying something, like when the 4th of July of the Americans was near, or when the Christmas of the Christians was near, or when the Patriots' Day of the Bostonians was near, or when the spring break of the college students was near, or when the Bastille Day of the French was near. It's just an odd way. Well, pass over the Jews. It's not like 15 different religious traditions in antiquity or modernity, modernity celebrate the Feast of Passover. I know of no Mormon Passover, nor of any alive among Southern Baptists, Hindus, Muslims, and many others have marvelous traditions and festival, but no Passover. So even in this early passage where the term, the Jews, carries an untypical, non-normal, odd meaning, the gospel does not handle the term with ease, grace, or courtesy. Yes, John here may be helping his Gentile readers with reminders about Judaism, its feasts, for instance. But there is, as the gospel unwinds, a fuller, a tragic, 
manner of speech here. You think of Yankees fans from New York City mentioning those from Boston who have tickets at Fenway Park or the way they speak of us or we speak of them, others. You think of Robert E. Lee referring to the inhabitants of Boston and other places due north of him as those people. You think of a humorous play from a few years ago in in which one woman says something about men to three other women, one of whom responds, oh, them. There is lurking here and behind the great dark shadow something loose in the universe. Bishop Hapgood once said, the only factually demonstrable Christian teaching about which there can be no doubt is the doctrine of original sin. There is something loose in the universe. And there is more that is loose this morning. Now you are keen Bible readers, so you know that normally in a gospel, the cleansing of the temple happens right at the end of the gospel, just before the cross, and is the spark, the catalyst, or the cause of Jesus' crucifixion, as in Matthew, as in Mark, as in Luke. Well, here the writer has brought up the temple with its cattle and sheep and doves, with its money changers and temples overturned, with its sheer public conflict right in the heart of the Passover, of Hoihudaioi, has brought the temple right up to the very beginning of the gospel. This should teach us something. A gospel is a stylized memory, a preaching of the resurrection by way of reminiscence about Jesus, not a history, nor a biography, nor a deposition on the way to a legal brief on the way to an indictment. You know this. Even if you didn't, you would know it now because of what was read a moment ago. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. It is the resurrection that carries the gospel and the gospels, not the other way around. You could call it a saving reminiscence, embedded in the simplest of elements. Resurrection precedes gospel. By the way, along the way, in the reading of the Gospel of John, we pick up some sideways hints of what sort of community produced this sort of gospel. And one of the little hints glimmering in the big dark is that this gospel has a bone to pick with some folks it is close to, a bone to pick with, of all people, its own close-knit extended family, the Jews. The Jews then said, this temple, please, who else at Passover in Jerusalem in 30 AD was around to talk to other than Jewish people? Methodists? Flat-earth believers? Methodist flat-earth believers? No. Everyone in this scene is Jewish, from Jesus on up and on down. You see, there is something odd, something sliding around, something loose, something revealingly strange about the way this gospel, including, by the way, right here in chapter 2, speaks of Jesus, of his family and friends, of the twelve disciples, of John the Baptist, of the earliest Christian church community, of Paul of Tarsus, and many, many others, all Jews. Something else is going on here, 
And it is crucial for us, year by year, carefully to hear it. Nota bene. It is likely, highly probable, that the author of John has in mind not Jews in general, but rather some other very familiar group closer at hand, down the street, in the synagogue, out of which John and his small early church group of Jesus worshipers have been exited due to the, by Jewish standards, dire heresy of ditheism, and with whom they are engaged around the year 90 in something like a family feud. You know, others, those people, them, those we oppose. You cannot read merely with a flat nasal honky reading any of the usages of the phrase the Jews in John. And our failure as Christians, as a religious community, our failure in teaching the scripture rightly over centuries, right up to this morning, our failure to see, perceive, interpret, and communicate what is loose in this gospel, its depiction of the Jews, has had monstrous consequences. While the horrific historic tragedy of Christian antisemitism has more roots than those in this fourth gospel. It has no deeper roots than these. Those who wrote John in 90 AD, who bowed before the risen Christ, whose glory and magnificence and exaltation and divinity, they had only dimly perceived for some time, and whom they had only painfully come to recognize, as Thomas says, as my Lord and my God. They were coming out of an experience of odium theologicum, that is, theological and religious sheer hatred, conflict, difference. With with whom? Well, with whom do you get angriest? With their family, their kin, their closest friends, their former prayer partners. Let us pause for some contrition, lament, compunction, confession this Lent in the same year that we honored Elie Wiesel from this pulpit and across this university on September 17, 2017. The advantage of our conversation this Lent with Thomas Merton, who died 50 years ago, sails into view here. His autobiography, many of you are reading such, is titled Seven Story Mountain, and his lengthy vital account therein, with one notable exception explained in the introduction, gives full measure to his own experience of the fallenness of creation. On one hand, his journey courses through the most beautiful and culturally gracious spaces from his time and to some degree still from ours, southern France, the Long Island Sound, London, Cambridge, Oxford, New York, Columbia, the University, Bermuda, and upstate New York. You could argue that his relative ignorance of New England is a failure, yes, but in his study and reading, as well as his travel and culture, in the main he stays with the very best. All of it, finally, fails him and, it must be emphasized, fails him 
not for his own failure to embrace, hold fast, honor, and respect what is there and what there is. His parents die young. His brother dies before he can really know him as an adult. His young friendships wither and fade. He departs Oxford without a degree. His various relationships with women, faintly, even coyly recollected, provide no happiness. His reading, apart from William Blake, disappoints. His teachers, apart from Mark Van Doren, fall short. His inherited religious backgrounds in Quaker silence and Episcopal liturgy leave him empty and discouraged. His critique of Protestant Christianity as practiced is scathing, but not, for that matter, unfair. He mistakenly or ironically or both refers to Riverside Church as Rockefeller Church, but he finally comes home to sacrament. He finally finds a home in sacrament. This happens on a little side street in the Upper West Side of New York City, quite familiar to those of us who attended Union Theological Seminary. Through a strange course of influences, he finds himself one hot August Sunday in 1938, sitting in a pew at the little Corpus Christi Catholic Church on 121st Street. From that very sanctuary, I weekly or bi-weekly saw my teacher and advisor, Father Raymond Brown, emerge having said the Wednesday Mass. There was a time when most theologians were also ordained and so pressed into service when and as that was needed or possible. He would amble down the slight hill there in the Morningside Heights, 1978, as we now remember him, 2018, in black suit and white collar, and pause to talk, to check the progress of his advisees, to smile, and then to return to the intricacies of John chapter 2, read a moment ago. On that one morning in August of 1938, Thomas Merton was overcome by grace, by community, by prayer, by liturgy, by sermon, by host, so overcome that he stumbled out into the bright New York autumn sunlight without having received, that day, the sacrament. He had knelt next to a young woman, perhaps a fellow Columbia student, who was clearly and earnestly and sincerely praying with all her heart, It has been 40 years since I've stood on the steps of Corpus Christi on 121st Street. It seems a day ago, though. This is the strange thing about time, about recollection, about the passage of time, about memory, about how close things are that nonetheless are at a great distance. For Thomas Merton... His emergence from purgatory came through sacrament. May this be so this morning right here for you. May this be so this morning right here for you. Here is the burden and the delight of ministry on, at, or near a university campus. You just never know who may be coming home 
now in word, now in sacrament, in the very quotidian, utterly simple, spare nothingness of prayer, of worship, of sacrament. Touch helps, familiarity helps, music helps, some words help, repetition helps, taste helps. There is a physicality that helps. We understand God if or as we do in a supermental way, as Cyril Richardson regularly put it, in a supermental, sacramental way, we might say today, in prayer, in sacrament. Like those who wrote John 2, Merton was astounded at long last by the height of Christ. They and John began to see once they saw, and he began to see once he saw. That is, once the resurrection glory and the cross of Christ gradually became clear to this small Gospel of John group, once they began fully to realize who this Jesus was and is and was for them, human and divine, Then things began to fall into place. That is, once the resurrection glory and the cross of Christ gradually became clear to Thomas Merton, once he began fully to realize who this Jesus was and is and was for him, both human and divine, then things began to fall into place. And out of this drastic dislocation in the Gospel of John came a new religion. There is really no other way to put it. The Christianity of the Christ, which would then take wing in the 2nd and 3rd and 4th centuries in direct dialogue with the terms set by John. And out of this drastic sacramental dislocation, In Merton came a new spiritual life, the Christianity of the Christ, which would then take wing in the next five decades of his life in direct dialogue with the terms set by sacrament. On Thursday evening this past week, about 6 p.m., at the cooling end of a bright, warm day, I walked slowly across the lawn here next to the chapel, known lovingly as the BU Beach. As usual, I was lost in some errant thought or three when I stepped forward and found my foot resting on the top of a skittering frisbee. Two kind students, far left and far right, called out, one saying, You can throw it to us. It was not clear. You need friendship to know inflection and implication in speech. Whether that meant you can throw it to us, please feel free to throw it to us, or against all appearances, you seem like you might actually be able to throw it to us, or we are not playing some game where you have to leave the frisbee where your right foot happened to step upon it. It did not matter because I had every intention of throwing it, long left or long right, 
And that was not premeditated deliberation. Before knowing, I bent down and picked it up and threw it to the right before any thinking. It sailed out and up, and there was bemusement that it did so, so well, or even at all. It took another block of walking before I was melted into emotion and reminiscence, brought out of that simple touch, that old feel, that muscle memory from 50 years and more ago, that gliding motion so unfamiliar and yet so utterly familiar. We spent every summer, all summer, say 1962, at age eight, throwing a frisbee. It is all we had. It is all we needed. You woke up. You had breakfast. You were expected home in that small college farm town in the evening when the streetlights came on. You could come back for lunch or dinner if you wanted, but it was assumed someone would feed you. And the lovingly benevolent iron matriarchy that ran that side of Hamilton, New York, decreed only one inviolable summer law. You get home when the streetlights come on or else. And so with ball and bat, and so with frisbee, and so decades later, in a throw, the far-off rural agricultural bucolic small-town world, by revelation, there is, is there, at hand and in hand. In grace, God holds us by hand, at hand, in hand. Sacrament told Merton who he was, reminded him of who he was meant to be, made sense of his memories, brought a recollection in touch and muscle and taste and sight and hearing of God incarnate in Jesus Christ. You could call it a saving reminiscence embedded in the simplest of elements. Ye that do truly and earnestly repent of your sin and are in love and charity with your neighbor and intend to lead a new life following the commandments of God, come, draw near in faith, and take this holy sacrament to your comfort.
Good morning and welcome to Marsh Chapel. As we strive to be a heart in the heart of the city and a service in the service of the city, we hope you may find yourself at home here, whether just for the morning, for the few years of a degree program, or for a more fulsome season of life. We are a vibrant, multi-generational, socio-economically, ethnically, and politically diverse Christian community. If you find yourself here for the first time, whether by radio, live stream, or podcast, or in person, welcome. If you want to know more about the community here, please send us an email at chapel at bu.edu or give us a call at 617-353-3560 or add your name to the red pad at the center, uh, near the center aisle here in the nave. It is spring break at BU this week and our regularly scheduled weekday activities are suspended while students, faculty, and staff are away. If you are traveling this week, we wish you safe and adventurous travels. While there is no weekly weekday programming this week, the St. John Passion Lecture Series continues today at 12.30 p.m. downstairs. Children's education will also be happening today. Kids are invited to join Marsh Associate Nick Rodriguez during the final hymn. And confirmation class continues this week. Today's topic, United Methodist History. In the season of Lent, if you are interested in deepening your relationship with Marsh Chapel and Christ and are interested in baptism, confirmation, or being received into membership, please speak with Dean Hill or with me after the service or contact the chapel office at chapel at bu.edu. Sacraments at Marsh Chapel are open to all regardless of race, sexual orientation, creed, immigration status, ability, or income level. Today's communion service is open to all. If you find yourself listening from afar and desiring to avail yourself of the sacrament but unable to be present for worship, please contact the chapel office, and our ministry staff will work to find an option to bring the Lord's Supper to you. If you're outside the Boston area, we can work with a United Methodist minister in your area to bring the sacrament to you. The office number is, again, 617-353-3560 and our email is chapel at bu.edu. Finally, mark your calendars for the MLK Remembrances on Wednesday, April 4th at 6 p.m. with the Reverend Cornell William Brooks as preacher, and on Sunday, April 8th at 11 a.m. with Governor Deval Patrick as preacher. If you're interested in assisting with a special presentation at the Howard Gottlieb Archive following that service, please contact the dean. As always, more information about these and other events is available on the chapel website, bu.edu chapel, where there is also the opportunity for online giving. As the ushers wait upon those in the nave, I encourage you to remember it is both a gift and a discipline to be a giver, and thank you for your continued support of the ministries of Marsh Chapel.
before us, the life within us, the fellowship among us, and thy love that surrounds us. We give thee thanks, O Lord. Bless these gifts and the givers, we pray in Christ. Amen. Christ our Lord invites to his table all who love him, who earnestly repent of their sin and seek to live in peace with one another. Therefore, let us confess our sin before God and one another. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors. And we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Hear the good news. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. That proves God's love towards us. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Glory to God. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give our thanks and praise. It is right and a good and joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you, Almighty God, creator of heaven and earth. You brought all things into being and called them good. From the dust of the earth you formed us in your image and breathed into us the breath of life. When we turned away and our love failed, your love remained steadfast. When rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, you bore up the ark on the waters, saved Noah and his family, made covenant with every living creature on earth. When you led your people to Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights, you gave us your commandments and made us your covenant people. When your people forsake your, forsook your covenant, your prophet Elijah fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and on your holy mountain he heard your still, small voice. And so with your people on earth and all the company of heaven, we praise your name and join their unending hymn. are you and blessed is your son Jesus Christ when you gave him to save us from our sin your spirit led him into the wilderness where he fasted 40 days and 40 nights to prepare for his ministry when he suffered and died on a cross for our sin you raised him to life presented him alive to the apostles during 40 days and exalted him at your right hand by the baptism of his suffering death and resurrection you gave birth to your church delivered us from slavery to sin and death, and made with us a new covenant by water and the Spirit. Now, when we, your people, prepare for the yearly feast of Easter, you lead us to repentance for sin and the cleansing of our hearts, that during these 40 days of Lent we may be gifted in grace to reaffirm the covenant you made with us through Christ. On the night in which he had given for himself up for us, he took bread, gave thanks to you, 
broke the bread and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples and said, Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of these your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us as we proclaim the mystery of faith. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. By your Spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit in your holy church, All honor and glory is yours, almighty God, now and forever. And now with the confidence of children of God, let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.
we pray. Eternal God, we give you thanks for this holy mystery in which you have given yourself to us. Grant that we may go into the world in the strength of your spirit to give ourselves for others. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord.
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the communion of the Holy Spirit be and abide with each one of us now and forever.